Um, I got a question for you. Is, <clears throat> is God big enough? Now, before we just shake our heads because we say yes, because that's what I learned in Sunday school back when I was a kid. Yes, God is big enough. Let's just really think about that question. Is God big enough? Is he strong enough? Is he really big enough to meet the needs, the issues, the problems, the dilemmas that you and I face on a daily basis? Now, I know if you're like me, you're like, well, yes, of course he is. But have we really drilled in to to examine that? Is he enough? Is he strong enough? We've been walking through the book of Mark, and this this book is an amazing uh, letter originally written to some Christians in the, in the city of Rome. Uh, it was written about 20 or 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And these Christians in Rome were facing serious persecution because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so over and over throughout this book, we're going to see Mark, the, the, the man who actually penned this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see him with, in one hand, this, this symbol of the authority of Jesus, and he's going to have in his other hand this symbol of the, uh, the, the mission of Jesus. And over and over, he's going to be clanging these symbols like that, that three-year-old that got the drum set for Christmas, and you're like, just be quiet for once. He's just going to clang these symbols over and over, the authority and the mission, the authority and the mission, and the authority and the mission, over and over throughout this book to try to drill into the hearts and the heads of these believers in Rome that Jesus is big enough. But we've got to wrestle with that. We've got to wrestle in our own hearts, in our own minds, do I truly believe that he is big enough? Because when you take the authority of Jesus and you take the mission of Jesus and you cling these together, it demands a continuous response in our hearts, in our minds, of who this Jesus really is really was. And so this book of Mark, it started off, as we'll see in our little map here, it started off with a time of preparation for Jesus' ministry. That's where we went through the whole stuff of, of, of John the Baptist coming and, and pre- pre- paving the way and baptizing all these people. And Jesus comes and he symbolically takes on the sin of the people as he gets baptized himself. And then he goes through this time of temptation in the wilderness, this preparation of Jesus' ministry. But a couple of weeks ago, we start, we we honed in on his Galilean ministry, the second part where Jesus was actually, John had been arrested and Jesus is on the scene actually preaching this, this new message, this new truth, this new doctrine of grace through himself, this gospel that must be believed in and, and turning away from everything that we hold dear and turning to God as the source of everything. And then last week, Richard talked about how Jesus was walking through and he began calling disciples as Allison just alluded to, just saying, follow me, follow me. Let go of everything that you think that you, that you could find significance and find help in and find hope in. Let loose of it and follow me. And now we pick up with Jesus in uh, Capernaum, which is a town. It's a major town in uh, Galilee. And this becomes the center, really, of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Now, normally what we do is we read a little bit and then we talk a little bit. We read a little bit and we talk a little bit. But this is a big chunk of, 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 uh, of text today, this whole issue of what's happening in the synagogue. So what we're going to do, we're going to do a little bit different. We're going to walk through this three times, all right, through these uh, seven or eight verses. We're going to walk through it three times. The first time, we're just going to walk through and just make sure we have our mind wrapped around what's happening, okay? 
This might be a brand new, uh, you might not have ever read this or maybe you read this a long time ago. We're just going to wrap our mind around what's happening. Then we're going to walk back through it again and try to put ourselves in the shoes of these Christians in Rome who are being persecuted for their faith and ask basically the question of, okay, now we know what's happening. Okay, so what? So what does that mean for, for the people who are reading this the very first time? What, what are the implications of this? And then we're going to try to walk through it quickly a third time with the question of, all right, that's great that we know what happened and, and we know, okay, why you know, it was written for those early Christians. But probably what most of us have come into the room here this morning is the question of, so what? So what does that mean for me today? All right, I've got a marriage that's kind of crumbling, kind of falling apart. It's kind of okay. I don't know. We've got kids that are running loose in my mind. I'm, I'm pulling my hair out trying to just balance the checkbook. So what does all that mean for me today? Okay? So we're going to go, what's happening? What's happening in the minds of the people who first read it? And then, so what? So what for us? So we can leave here with a good understanding of what Jesus, I think, is teaching us and telling us through his word. So let's, let's dive straight in. So the first verse here, verse 21 says, And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath day, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, he being Jesus. And so Capernaum, as I said, has become the city uh, of the center of Jesus' ministry. And Peter, this is his home. Richard will be preaching on that next week. But the synagogues were set up. They were controlled by an administrator, a manager. But that manager wasn't the teacher. These rabbis traveling through would actually do the majority of the teaching. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to teach in the synagogue. Verse 22 says, so remember, we're just trying to wrap our mind around what's happening. What, what's, what's the details here? And they were astonished, they being the crowd, they were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. The people in the crowd would have been normal, everyday Jews, uh, perhaps many who had seen Jesus even be baptized. Maybe they saw the heavens split open. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But Jesus' teaching was unique. They, they weren't uh, uh, just astonished about how he taught, but the substance of what he taught. It says they taught with authority. This Greek word authority, when you break it down, it literally means out of substance or with substance. So it isn't just that he was charismatic in what he was saying, but the actual substance of what he was saying was powerful. It's like Jesus had a better understanding, a greater knowledge of the scripture that these scribes that they were used to hearing had. It says not like these scribes. The scribes were like these these experts in the Mosaic law. It's kind of like being a PhD in the Mosaic law, okay? If you had a PhD in the Mosaic law, then you'd be kind of a scribe, this teacher of the law. The law of Moses existed initially to show the Jewish nation that they couldn't do enough good in order to achieve God's standard of holiness. So Jesus comes in, he's teaching, they're astonished, and verse 23, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cries out. So it's like Jesus is communicating the, to this crowd the message, the glorious message of his grace and the mission of why he has come, and immediately there's a distraction. All right? Have you ever been in a church setting where somebody like stands up and he like starts shouting, like, hey, that's not true, this is true, you know, something like that? Like, I've never been in that situation, but I'm sure that would be really, really awkward. I remember this one situation where I wanted to stand up and say, hey, I'm not so sure about that. Um, actually, I was with your former pastor when that happened. Um, and, uh, but I didn't. Like, but I, I felt like I should have. You know, it was kind of one of those weird situations. But here's what's happening. Jesus is teaching a new message that we're going to get to in a second. And immediately the devil or a demon 
possesses a man and stands up, tries to derail Jesus' message. And he says, verse 24, what do you have to do with us? This is the demon talking. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And this, this demon speaks up through this man, and he says, you know, what do you have to do with us? He's, he's, he's kind of like trying to punk Jesus, if you think of it in that term. All right? he's, trying to, he's kind of saying, like, I know who you are. I know what you got, and you, I don't know if you can really touch me. I don't know if you can really handle this. And so Jesus immediately replies to him, verse 25, Jesus rebukes, saying, be silent and come out of him. And so, I don't know if the word shut up is like a bad word in your home. It was in mine growing up, so I apologize if this is like too bad. But the literal translation of what Jesus says is, shut up and get out. Shut up and go. And so, this, this demon speaks up to try to derail. Jesus says, man, you don't have any room here. Shut up and get out. And so the demon has no, uh, nothing to do but to obey, to submit. And verse 26 says, the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, he comes out of him, him being the man that he was possessing. And verse 27 says, and they, this crowd, was amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? <laughs> what is this? A new teaching with authority. This is new. This is different. He commands even the spirits to obey him. So the crowd is watching this and they're seeing this. They're hearing this with their ears and they they just can't believe it. They begin questioning each other. And like, why would you question someone else who's in the crowd who's never seen this either? Like, what do you think? Well, I don't know. Why are you asking me? I have no idea. I'm seeing this for the first time myself too. And so there's something new about this guy, Jesus. And then even the demons obey him. And then here's... The last verse, verse 28. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Listen, immediately the details of this guy, Jesus, was on the tongues of everyone in the region. This wasn't just a small ordeal. The fame of Jesus spread everywhere in Galilee that there were people. Okay, so this is what's happening, all right? Jesus comes into a synagogue. He starts preaching with authority, such teaching from Old Testament who he is and what this is all about. Immediately, a demon tries to interrupt him. The devil tries to throw this demon at him to try to derail him. And immediately, Jesus says, hey, shut up and get out of here. And the people are in awe and amazement at the authority, the substance that this guy Jesus has. Okay? That's what's happening. So let's ask a question, basically. Okay, so what, so what does that mean? What does this mean for the people who are these first Christians in Rome? They're being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. They're being killed because they believe in Jesus Christ. Why does Mark lead with this miracle of, of kicking a demon out of a person? In John's gospel, the very first message, I mean the very first miracle that John gives is Jesus turning water into what? Wine. But that's not the first miracle that, that Mark leads with. He has a specific audience that he's writing to to explain the power of who Jesus is. Well, certainly water into wine is powerful. But listen, these Christians in Rome were experiencing the greatest form of evil one could possibly imagine. We've mentioned several times before that the government was so evil that they had placed this animal skins on the believers and then put them in front of wild animals and the wild animals would eat the Christians alive. 
If you want to see the manifestation of evil, there it is. These Christians in Rome were experiencing a darkness that we probably have never seen with our eyes. I hear Mark screaming, listen, church in Rome, Jesus is greater. And they say, but, but look at what's happening. Look at what Nero is doing. Look at, look at what the government is doing to us. And I hear Mark screaming, Jesus is greater. We have the question, is he big enough? I think these Christians in Rome, if anyone had the question or had the opportunity to ask that question, is Jesus enough? Is he big enough? They would have the right to ask that question. And I hear Mark screaming, he is. He's enough. So let's walk back through this and ask the question simply. So what does all this mean, especially to the initial readers of this? And so verse 21, they went to Capernaum and immediately at the Sabbath, they entered into the synagogue and Jesus was teaching. As a rabbi, Jesus was a teacher. He taught as all rabbis did from Old Testament scriptures. So Jesus, we find repeatedly throughout the New Testament, going into synagogues, teaching about himself, about this kingdom of God that he is here on earth to establish. And he's using the Old Testament uh, scripture to do it. In Luke 4, he reads from Isaiah. He reads it. He sits down and he says, you you hear what I just read? Okay, I'm here. I'm the one that is fulfilling that. And people are like, what in the world? And they began to, that's the beginning of basically Jesus's end, if you think of it that way, where the, where the religious crowd wanted to end Jesus' life because he's making these claims. So they were astonished, verse 22, at his teaching, for Jesus taught them with one who had authority and not as the scribe. Listen, Jesus was, a reg, was not just a regular teacher. He wasn't the typical teacher. There was something clearly different about his teaching. There was something clearly different about how he explained the scripture. The scriptures weren't some sort of cold, distant uh, things passed down from generations to generations. That Jesus wasn't just going through scripture in some sort of ritualistic order. Listen, it's as if the very word of God had now become flesh and was dwelling amongst the people. And so as God, Jesus elaborates on these scriptures, he is the embodiment, as John says in John 1, the word of God now walking among us. Jesus taught with authority. He taught as though he knew what he was talking about. There was substance to him. And these people, these, these Christians in Rome, they didn't have to realize, uh, rely on just oral traditions. And this is what I think it might mean. This is what it could possibly be. But there was actual substance and authority to what Jesus was saying. And immediately... In their synagogue, there was a man with an unclean spirit who cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? This interruption. It's as if as soon as Jesus' words of truth and grace and life start to fall on the ears of hearers, the message gets immediately interrupted. It says immediately, where we at? immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now, I don't know if this man... Uh, walked into the synagogue with an unclean spirit, like immediately, or if he was kind of sitting there, you know, the whole time, and immediately a, a, um, a evil spirit possessed him, and he stood up. I don't know exactly how it happened, okay, because I wasn't there, and scripture's not clear, but here's what I think the early Christians in Rome, as they're reading this, I think this is what's, what's being shouted to them. 
is that whenever the message of God's truth is proclaimed, the enemy will do anything and everything to try to stop it. Okay? As soon as Jesus is teaching this new teaching, this new doctrine, this new thing about grace, this new thing about this gospel of God, the enemy immediately tries to put an end to it. How it all happened, I mean, I don't exactly know. Did he walk through the door? Did he just immediately be possessed? I'm not exactly sure. But this is great encouragement, I think, to the Christians in Rome who are trying to live this life of faith and and obedience to God because of what God has done in them. And they, at every turn, they're being faced with the enemy trying to stop them. Not just stop their message by silencing them, but to stop this message by killing them. And so when they hear Jesus himself is being interrupted in his message, then we shouldn't be shocked or or, or perplexed when our message, our life, the gospel living through us, tries to be eliminated by the enemy. And so verse 24 goes on to talk about this this actual interaction. And and what's so beautiful about this is that the devil, the demons, they don't know all things. They're not omniscient. The devil's not omniscient. They don't know the specifics about the cross. They don't know the specifics, or they didn't know the specifics about the redemption. Paul teaches us in Ephesians that these specifics were hidden from Old Testament prophets uh, and are now being made known. When you read Ephesians 3 especially, which is on the screen here, and I'm going to read in a sec, you get the idea that the demons knew that God had chosen Israel to save, but it's as if they had no clue about this thing of the Gentiles, this mystery that was hidden, that the Gentiles were a part of this as well. And so Ephesians 3.10 says, that Paul says, so that through the church, this calling together of all nations through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, might be now made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And when we read heavenly places, I don't think we should just think of like heaven. This is in spiritual places, in spiritual realms, including the demons themselves. So as God today is drawing men from all nations, of all tongues, of all tribes, this is God showing off his wisdom that this thing isn't just for an ethnic Israel, but this is for all people of all the world, of all tongues and all tribes. And so this thing of redeeming the church is blowing the minds of even the demons who are seeing this take place. They thought they had a grip on the Gentiles. They thought they had the Gentiles in a stranglehold, but God is revealing the power of his wisdom by even including Gentiles in this thing of his elect. And so Mark is using this to clarify to these people that nothing can stop the plan of God, even the devil himself. And so Verse 25, we see that Jesus says, come out and be gone from him. He says, shut up and get lost. But think about being an early Christian in Rome, that just the word of Jesus is enough to stop the attack, the distraction of the enemy. You think about like a three-year-old, if you have a three-year-old son or when you had a three-year-old son, could, could, could your three-year-old son uh, intimidate the it's father, you know, daddy, I'm going to beat you up. You know, I mean, it's kind of cute, you know, kind of whatever. But but really now, when you start getting as, as big as your son, you know, he might, he might, you know, but that's like 13, 14, you know, whatever. But uh, 11. Oh, man, big kid. Uh, but here, but here's the deal. As silly as it's to think of a, a father, a grown man being intimidated by a three year old child. 
Okay, take that and multiply it by infinity and you'll see the authority that Jesus has over even the demons themselves. Because Jesus is the creator. We'll get into that here in a second. So the crowd is watching this, verse 27. They're seeing this. They're questioning each other. Like, what is this all about? The, uh, even the demons obey. And the crowd is watching this and hearing this. They're blown away. Everything that they thought they knew is now being brought into question. Everything they thought, they thought we've never seen a man have authority over demons. What is this? Th- this, is, this is causing us to question what we know, what we think is true. And they said this is a new teaching, a brand new teaching. And uh, a new teaching right there in front of me. It is a new teaching. And what's important for us to understand is that this is not an old teaching that's been kind of repackaged and rewrapped and now kind of repackaged. Um, we had a baby shower yesterday, and uh, it's always beautiful to repackage uh, used gifts. And so when we, we have, uh, um, when we get stuff at our wedding, we're still, I think, repackaging. Now, we didn't send you repackaged gifts. It just came to my mind. But... Um, um, when, when we, uh, we had a bunch of, like, we got three or four George Foreman grills, I think, at our wedding. I think we still have one that we need to get rid of. If you get a George Foreman grill from us one day, just, just think it was new, okay? But, um, but that repa- this isn't a repackaging of something that was already in existence. Don't look down your spiritual nose at me when you talk about repackaging gifts. I know you do it, all right? I know you do it. All right, but here's the deal. This isn't a repackaging of an old thing. I mean, this is a brand new doctrine, a brand new message this message of hope, this message of grace that was foreign to them. You see, the Old Testament scribes, they were teaching that you must do in order for God to do. You must demonstrate your worthiness to God in order for God to accept you. But Jesus' gospel that he came to preach, that he came to accomplish, was a new teaching. Jesus' message was, you can't, so I will. His message was, you're not enough. But I am. His message was, you don't have what it takes, but I do. His message was, you can't impress God, but since I am God, I can impress God. His message was, your sin separates you from God, but I have come to remove it from you, to cut it out and to place a new self in you, a new man in you. His message was, you are spiritually dead, but through me, you can become spiritually alive. This was a new message that radically transformed the lives of those who heard it. But not just those who heard it, but those who believe it and receive it as truth. Jesus has been calling those to lose everything, to let go of everything that they held on to that they thought brought them to God. Whatever kind of philosophy, whatever kind of way of thinking, to let go of it and turn from it. That's the idea of repentance, letting go of what you think gets you in God's graces and turn to Jesus because he's the only thing that can get you access to God and believe this gospel. So at once, verse 28, his message spread like wildfire. There's simply no way to stop the gospel message. His message of life and truth and grace and freedom is too big for even the devil to thwart. We'll see throughout Mark, as he's writing to these Christians, more and more people trying to stop the message. But the more they try to stop it, the more it spreads. Because Jesus is greater. So this is what's happening. I think this is what these early Christians in Rome are seeing. They're seeing that, that Jesus himself is interrupted by the demons 
But that couldn't stop Jesus. And what hope they now have, where the government, where Nero, where the, the enemy is trying to destroy and stop them and stop this message that, they, that has radically changed their life. And they can rest assured that man, nothing is going to stop this. The more it tries to get stopped, the greater and further the message will spread. Okay, so I think that's kind of, in general, what was happening and, and, and why Mark was including this and writing to these Christians in Rome. But let's just leave here with just answering a third question. Of, okay, that's great. So what? I got real issues. I, I mean, uh, certainly getting eaten by live animals is a real issue, but that's not me. I've got my own issues. I've got my own struggles. So let's walk through much quicker this time, which is the question of, so what? So what does this have to do? Like, what now? What am I supposed to do, see, become as a result of this? What does this have to do with me? Jesus comes into Capernaum. He's teaching in, on the Sabbath. He's teaching a, a teaching that astonishes the people. For he has authority, not as a scribe, but with a new message. Listen, if you want to jot some things down, there's going to be four or five of these things. You don't have to. I mean, they're on the podcast if you want to like, listen to them again. But, but here's what I think is like, kind of like a now what. Now what? How, what? What should we think on as we leave here today? Number one is we must be careful to listen to the teaching of Jesus and the Holy Spirit through the apostles which we have as the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Scripture alone, and not lean on anything else for our foundation of life. We must lean on Jesus and His Holy Spirit through the apostles alone. The early church in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, 42, says they were doing a lot of things. They were unified, and one of the things they were doing, they were giving themselves to the teaching of the apostles. The teaching of God's Word, the truth of God's Word, must be our foundation. I mean, there's all sorts of good books and great authors that we can read and be encouraged and taught by. But listen, there are a lot of modern-day scribes that have tried to add to the purity of the gospel message, and it has become polluted and really no gospel at all. Traditions have done this, Okay. Traditions have done this. Our, in our membership weekend coming up this weekend and in a couple of weekends for our next one, and he mentioned we've got one uh, slated for January. In our membership weekend material, we've walked through each of our doctrinal beliefs, and we saw ourselves kind of being influenced by tradition first initially rather than on Scripture. And so we went through slowly and each one, and we're asking ourselves, what does the Scripture teach on this? Not just what does our... Our, our, our philosophical background, or what does our tradition say on these things? But what does Scripture say on these? If we get the gospel wrong, we're going to get everything else wrong. So what do we, what now, when we leave here? And my challenge is we must lean on Jesus' teaching, the apostles' teaching, first and foremost, and only when it comes in, into developing a foundation for our lives. And he says, verse 23, and they immediately in the synagogue, there was a man with unclean spirit who cries out all this stuff. The second thing I think, like, and now what? Like, as we leave, we must realize first that Jesus must be, his teaching must be the foundation of our lives. We can't add to it. He must be his pure gospel. But secondly, we must realize that the devil does not want the message about God to spread. He does not want the message to be told. 
He'll sometimes possess a man to distract people from the truth, but sometimes he'll pollute the message with add-ons to keep people in bondage. Many times the gospel, uh, the devil will take the gospel and he'll add a little bit of, well, yet Jesus did this, but you've got to do this and you've got to keep this and you better do those things. And we end up becoming slaves to the old system of a works-based salvation. We must realize that the devil will do anything and everything to stop the spread of the truth of the gospel. Verse 25, Jesus speaks up and he says, shut up and, and get gone. Come out of him. And the spirit had no choice. This evil spirit had no choice but to be removed. The third thing I, I, I hope, like in a now what setting, if we leave today, we, we must realize that Jesus' teaching about himself and about the purity of the gospel must be our foundation. Number two, as I just said, that the devil do any. We must realize, we must be wise to realize that the devil will try to do anything and everything to stop that. But thirdly, I think we must realize that Jesus is greater. That Jesus is greater than. And fill in the blank. What is he greater than? Just fill in the blank. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, he, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. As, Jesus, as God, Jesus spoke this universe into existence, and that includes everything, including the angels who would one day rebel and become these man-possessing demons. But even these demons were created by Jesus for Jesus. And you say, well, a demon is created for Jesus? What, what's that all about? Why would he have done that? Why would Jesus have created demons for himself? Well, listen, he, they were created in order for God to fully display the weight of his glory the depth of his riches, the greatness of his love by redeeming a people who had fallen into that rebellion, redeeming these people so that these people who believe in Jesus can experience the fullness of God forever in a redeemed, adopted sonship with God. So really, if you think about this whole thing of who the ultimate pawn of God is, man, I would submit that I think man, that the devil and the demons are even the, some of the greatest pawns, if you will, that God uses to show off his greatness. His authority exceeds the authority of the demons, of the devil. How much does it exceed? Infinitely. Jesus is greater. Is, if Jesus is greater than the powers of the devil, don't you think that he can handle the situation that you and I find ourselves in today? Whatever that is. You come into the room with a wrecked marriage. You come into the room, like, like your marriage is like you're walking on eggshells. You don't know what's going to happen the next 24 hours or the next 24 months. Like, you, you just don't know. Man, if, if, the, if Jesus could handle what the devil threw at him, don't you think Jesus can handle what we could place at his feet and say, God, this is for you. I can't handle this, right? 
You might be in here with, with a situation that, that you're up to your eyeballs in debt, in consumer debt. I know that's not something we, oh, we don't talk about money at church. But listen, here's the deal. Man, the devil can use materialism to wrap our minds around this earth and this, our, the stuff of this earth. And so we get so consumed with the stuff that we go into crazy consumer debt. And as a result, we are consumed by it. And so yet Jesus, he, he handled what the devil threw at him, this demon. But, but God, you don't understand this, this pressure I'm under, this debt, this financial burden I'm under. And listen, church, if Jesus could handle what the devil threw at him, don't you think he could handle what we place at his feet and say, God, I need you. I need your help. I need you to guide me through this. Maybe your situation has nothing to do with marriage or, or debt, but maybe you have an unbelieving spouse, which certainly is like mar- is a part of marriage, but you have an unbelieving spouse. I, we, we at Life Journey Church, we're, we're pleased to minister to folk of all different um, family situations. We have many in our church that have unbelieving spouses. And you, it's tempting to give, get at that point of ready to kind of just to give up, to stop believing that God is greater than. Let me, just, let me just encourage you. If Jesus can handle this demon that the devil threw at him, can't, can't Jesus handle your unbelieving spouse? Yes, he can. So whatever we find ourselves facing, just think this through. If Jesus can handle the best the devil has to throw at him, and he can handle what we have to throw at him, to hand to him, a job situation, whatever, he can handle it. Is Jesus greater than all these things? Man, you better believe it. Can Jesus be the creator of all things but yet be limited by your situation? No. Listen, this is how things end in verse 27. They were amazed. They were so amazed, they began to question themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the demons, the devil, the evil spirits. They obey him. Now, here's the, I don't know what number, I think this is four. We must realize that the truth of God's gospel is what God uses to amaze people. It's not fancy setups. It's not laser light shows or whatever. It's the truth of the gospel message that God uses to grab a hold of people. His grace is amazing. I think they wrote a song about it, right? You heard it? Amazing grace. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Man, this grace is amazing. It's awesome. It's the idea that our sin has brought us death at birth, our sin was the master of our beings. And as a result, we had no chance whatsoever for a relationship with God. No chance of experiencing God. None whatsoever. But God, being rich in His mercy, He made us who believe, those who believe, He made us alive in Christ Jesus. God resuscitates our dead spirits by His grace. God places in every single believer... God removes, God places the sin of every single believer on Jesus at the cross. And Jesus swallowed up the wrath of God that was to be poured out on us 
when our minds are turned from ourselves to God, the idea of repentance, and when we believe in this amazing message of this good news that God has punished his son for our sakes, he cuts out of us the old dead self, and he places in us a new self, a new man created after the likeness of God himself. Ephesians 4.24, created in true righteousness and true holiness. The old is dead. The sin is condemned. It is gone. And now we have a new man, a new self that lives and reigns in us. Man, this gospel, this message is what God uses to revolutionize people's lives. We don't have to add to it. The message is enough. And when this message is communicated, listen, here at Life Journey, our, our theme of our church is to spread the fame of God. And when we accurately communicate the gospel in this way, verse 28 is going to happen. At once, the fame, the, his fame spread everywhere throughout the region. We, realize, we must realize, here's the last one, that nothing is able to stop the spread of God's fame. Nothing. If the devil can't stop it, then you and I, we can't stop it. Nothing's going to get in the way. The gospel can't, it can be added to, it can be polluted, all right, but God is greater and he always seems to bring and straighten everything out in the end through his word. It, it, it's so cool to see the fact that God's fame was spread throughout this region, not as a result of like a church outreach program or, or, or even a, a system of evangelism. It was simply spread because of the power of this message that Jesus was communicating, the power of his, this message of grace, this gospel. And we must be willing to separate anything from our lives that we have added to this gospel for whatever reason. I know I've added throughout the years as a pastor. I've, I know I've tried to add things to the gospel for the longest time, and I still struggle. I confess that I would... Take this idea that Jesus saved me. He, he, he did this work of grace. But, but then I would focus so much on, but we've got to do this and we've got to not do this in order to keep God still loving us and keep God still happy with us. And listen, if we were spiritually dead when God showed his love towards us, how can we, and he has given us his righteousness, he's given us his purity, his holiness, how can we improve on that? If God, when he sees us, he sees us, as holy and righteous as he is himself because of Jesus, how can we improve on that? How can we say, okay, we're covered with Christ's righteousness, but today I didn't cuss my wife this morning, so I'm going, that, that makes you love me even a little bit more, right? No, it's, it's foolishness. We can't add to it. But, man, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of that. This is part of that tradition that I've held on to, that, that God saved me, but I've got to do stuff to get God to continue loving me. The reality of it is that it's finished. It's finished on the cross. And as we set our minds on what God has done in us and this new man that God has created in us, as we focus on that and not on the things of the former, not the things that these scribes were always teaching on, as we focus on this message that Jesus has saved us through his grace and he's placed in us his spirit as a new, in this form of this new man, as we see that, as we live in that, as we focus on that, We'll see our lives, our minds beginning to be transformed into the very likeness of Christ. But we already stand before God, holy and blameless, because of the work of the Spirit. You can't. He did. 
So let's rest in that. So Jesus is banging these things together. He's banging this, these symbols of his authority and his missions. He's banging them together. And Mark is recording it. They're, they're, being, they're sounding loud. And as they're sounded loud, the whole fame of God is being spread throughout the whole region. And we have an opportunity this morning to respond. If you're a believer in the room this morning, you can respond this morning by looking at the wonderful reality of the gospel. That God has united himself to you through his Holy Spirit. And you are now beloved. You are loved. Then let our minds focus on that reality. Let that be what we dwell on. When we were walking through Ephesians a couple months back, we saw over and over Paul emphasizing the fact that we are now uh, where Christ lives in us and, and dwells in us. And as we focus on that, we, we see the work of God that started in us become a reality around us. The focus of Paul wasn't to, to focus on the do's and the don'ts. It was, the focus wasn't to now add to it with a list of, of laws and rules. But the focus was realize what God has done in us. That freedom in Christ is achieved by God's grace, not by keeping a bunch of rules. Freedom in Christ is realized by God's grace, not by keeping rules. So if you're struggling with a particular sin in your life, if you're struggling with this idea of depression, this idea of anything that's not of faith, then I beg of you to set your minds on the completed work of Christ in you, that you have passed from life into death, that you have passed from darkness into life, that God chose you from before the foundation of the world, that you would be holy and blameless. Man, set your mind on that. That's certainly who you'll be one day, holy and blameless. But listen, church, that is, according to God's word, who you are now, holy and blameless. Your new self, Ephesians 4.24 says that you are created, this new self that's in you is created after the likeness of God in true holiness and true righteousness. You can get some relief, if you think you can, from, from trying to have willpower over sin. But listen, until we set our minds on the reality of what God has done in us, we will not see sin suppressed. But if you're not a believer, if you're on the outside of this thing of Christianity looking in, this thing seems kind of strange, some kind of weird, can I just ask you a question this morning? Does the thing that you place your hope in, whatever it is, work, intellect, philosophy, whatever that is, whatever you put your hope in, are you ultimately and totally fulfilled by it? Does it satisfy your every longing or at the end of the day are you still empty jesus says in matthew chapter 11 verse 28 he says come to me you who are weary come to me you who labor you who are trying to work this thing out you who are trying to do it on your own come to me and you'll find rest listen we have a savior who loves us more than we could ever imagine and he's saying I will give you rest because you can't work hard enough to work off the depravity of your heart. You can't work hard enough to cover up your sin. You can't. So I did. 
what we're going to do right now. Our band is going to come and get us going in this fourth and final worship song this morning. If I could try to drill everything down into a simple idea, a simple statement, this is what our journey marker says. If Jesus handled what the devil threw at him, and he did, can, can he handle what we throw at him? Whatever that baggage is that you're adding to the gospel, this idea that you've got to do things in order to keep God loving you, whatever that baggage is, maybe it's the baggage of a, of a marriage relationship where you're trying to hold on to it, you're trying to control, you're trying to, to be everything, you're trying to be the answer. If the devil threw everything at Christ, and Christ was like just two words in the Greek, and the devil was gone, can't he handle what you and I throw at him? Maybe it's an issue of just unbelief. You know, I, I, I want to believe, but, but I don't know if I can believe. Listen, Jesus can handle that. He can handle it. He's the creator and the savior of this world. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to do something a little bit different. Band's just going to pray, uh, play for a minute. But we're, we're not going to get up and sing just yet. We built into our time here an opportunity for you just to, to spend some time with God, whatever that looks like. Maybe through this you're realizing that you're placing more of a, of a trust in, you, in, in, in your willpower over sin than in God's completed work and forgiveness of your sin, what, whatever it is. Maybe this morning you're struggling in your own understanding of Jesus. And you just need to spend some time working, uh, praying that God would reveal himself to you. So whatever that looks like, whatever you're trying to hold on to that you think Jesus can't handle, and you just need to let go of it. Can God keep me sated? If, if, if I focus on what he's done instead of what, what I need to keep doing, I think Jesus can handle that. Pretty sure he can. And the beauty of it is as we focus on what he's done in us, it draws us into a greater obedience than we've ever experienced before. So we're just going to have a time for you to just to, to reflect, to pray. And then in a couple of minutes, we'll start singing. And this song that we're going to sing is titled, Our God is Greater. Because He is. And let's just close the service out in a minute. Just worship.